Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Bridge Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Bridge. I'm so excited. Thanks so much for inviting me. I, I think it's really fun to be here where Katie's doing her thing. So it's kind of reversed. And uh, it's, it's really fun for me to watch how much she loves being here anyway. And I can kind of see it now. Um, it's just really fun. I got to visit a couple weeks ago. I was really impressed. I texted Pastor Jackson after the service, and I said, those kids own their service. The the bridge is their service. I I love that. Um, I came from a larger church where I served uh, for quite some time, and um, the youth group was a little younger than this youth group. They uh, had split them up, then put them back together, then split them up again. So when I walked in here, I was like, wow, these aren't high schoolers, right? But half of you are kind of in between college and high school, whatever, but you can tell. You can tell the maturity is cool, and um, even the younger side of it is pretty deep here, so uh, I'm, in a good, I'm in a good place. I'm excited about it. If you want to pull up the Bible app um, while I'm talking for a minute, you can. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. I'm just going to be sharing tonight from the first 10 verses, but I've entitled this message called uh, The Family Name. And while you're finding it, either on your phone or if you brought your Bible, that's even better because I kind of have a thing about that. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about Katie. And because of what Candace said, I had to lean over real quick and say, hey, I'm going to tell a story about you. I didn't ask. We're good. But, you know, I have the mic, so what's she going to do? This is something that's kind of applicable to where we're going tonight with the Father's name. So here's here's the story. I... uh, Being a minister of the gospel has been a privilege for me, a privilege of a lifetime. I've served in about every function you could serve in in a church. My dad was a preacher. My grandpa was a preacher. I was raised on a pew, seriously. Probably cut my teeth on those wooden pews. But not the best job I've ever had. The best job I've ever had, the most important job I've ever had, was being a mom to three kids. This has been really fun. The interesting thing is they all thought they were my favorite. At different times, on different cards, they would say so from your favorite. And of course, you've probably done that to your parents too. And then they would all laugh and poke fun at the other one for doing the same. But Katie had the distinction of being the only girl. That always wasn't her favorite thing (laughs) going on because it's like she had three dads. When it came time for her to go to her first prom, a young man named Logan Stuller, who she ended up marrying, don't know if you've met him or not, came over to our home to ask permission if he could take Katie to the prom. Her father took him downstairs to my office, and I had an old school kind of big chunky desk, and Logan sat on one side of the desk, and Rob sat on the other. And then he put down four things on the desk. The first thing was he laid down his car keys to a car that he dearly loved. The second thing he put on the desk was his checkbook to sort of represent everything he owned. The third thing he put on his desk was the title deed to our home. The last thing he put on his desk was a two by three picture of Katie. And he looked at Logan in a mature age of 15 years old and he said, Logan, which of these things do you think matters more to me than anything else? And Logan very carefully and correctly tapped the picture. And my husband went, 
I don't think there was another word that needed to be said in that moment because Katie was irreplaceable. Her name came from us as parents. We love that girl. Tonight, before you leave here, I want each of you to feel the same way about how God sees you. Given every single thing that Jesus laid down, that's exactly how he feels about you. Are you with me? Go to 1 John chapter 3, and we will read just those first 10 verses in, in the whole volume, and then you're going to see just a few of them broken down on the screen. I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. I see a little bit of attitude in this. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children because he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For all sin is contrary to the law of God, and you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning, because they are children of God. So now, we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. That's a mouthful. We're going to break it down in some sections so we can talk about four things tonight. The first one, who I am, who you are. We're going to talk about this tonight. The second thing is what we won't do because of who we are. It's in the word not hard to find. Third thing is what we're going to look out for because of the family name, the things we're going to be very careful about. And the last thing we'll look at before we close is what we will always strive to do better. I don't know about you, but sometimes I flip through the Bible and I'm going through devotions and I'm reading and I'm on a plan and I got to hit the mark so I don't fall behind. And I can just fly through it and it means about this much. I might catch a word, a sentence, a thing in there that might stick because of what I'm going through in the moment, but I can't get the big picture. Tonight, we're just going to break it down just little by little in sections. Not every single word will be exegeted in this message, but we're going to get some big ideas, and I hope that we're going to go home a little differently. In talking with Pastor Jackson before I came here tonight, he said, so, you know, you ready to go? How do you feel about the passage that he had given me based on the series that you're on? And I said, you know, I struggled with this a little. Because before I can teach a passage, I have to work it in before I can work it out. Or it comes out pretty phony. 
So this has always been a journey. We have a saying in our house, Katie started it because when we were preparing to teach or speak or preach in a different setting, my kids called it hell week at home. That was just me working it in before I could work it out. So just know if it hits you in a couple sensitive spots, I feel you. I know where you are. I've been doing it for days. First of all, in those 10 verses, there are seven times that we are called his children. Seven times. With one of them in this translation, in the New Living Translation, just saying we are born into God's family. Same thing, right? Seven times. Now think about this for a moment with me. If the greatest mind in the universe, the creator of the universe, says something one time, he's got my attention, right? We're paying attention to that. If he says it seven times, I'm thinking there's a point here that he wants us to get. We are God's. We who have given our hearts to God and surrendered our life to him are God's children. This matters. This matters, friends. We carry the family name. That's going to make all the difference with how we do life. We're his kids, his sons, his daughters, and contrary to what my kids thought, he doesn't have favorites. He has no favorites. There's no one of you that can be replaced by another one of you. No matter what you think of yourself, no matter whether or not you sort of covet somebody else's gifts, none of us are replaceable by another. That's how it is when you're a parent. If he says it seven times, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where we're his children? We're adopted. That word kind of gets a bad rap these days because the only places that we ever really see that being said is in the news, and it's usually followed by not a good story. And if you happen to be one of those children that was selected, handpicked, chosen, we didn't get to do that with our kids. We just got who God gave us, and we're so glad he did. But adopted in biblical times means a little more than it means today. We are grafted in. I was trying to think of a good way, kind of looking through some commentaries about how I could explain this a little better. And I came across this. If a prince, someone with a lot of money, so in our culture that might be Jeff Bezos or... I don't know, somebody that really impresses you with everything that they're about or what they, what they want to do with their life. If they come and they find this little, violent, vicious, unloved kid on the street and say, hey, I'm taking you home. You're one of my sons now. Everything I have, everything I've earned, all the rights, all the privileges, all of that is going to be yours, just like it is with my own son. You are mine Maybe we would start to wrap our mind about what it means to be adopted, then times that times a thousand, because no one else can give us eternity. Nobody else can lay his life down for my sin. No one else can put at my disposal all the wisdom of heaven, all the resources of heaven, anything that I need to make me be what he created me to be. No one's checkbook can do that. That's what it means to be adopted. I was working with a crisis pregnancy center many years ago, and I, one of the clients that came in was a young college student. She had been raised in church. She knew the Lord, but she made some bad decisions 
in college, and she found herself pregnant. The father of the baby didn't even know about it. And she came into the center and confirmed that the test was positive. And through painstaking decision time, she decided that the best course of action for her at that time was to give the baby up for adoption. She was in no place to raise a baby, and her parents were not willing to help. But in that, I became her companion. She went through an open adoption where she would get to meet in in neutral locations couples that were asking to adopt the baby. And she would get to meet them in a neutral place and just kind of interview them and kind of talk through it and see if she could find peace about this process. And I would go as her advocate. That was it. It wasn't an official position. I was just her friend. We went through the first appointment, went to Indianapolis, drove there, met an attorney and his wife in his office, uh, fragile people, desperate, desperate to have a, have a child of their own, and they tried with everything they could to impress her that they were the right ones. She came away from that appointment, sobbed all the way home in the car, saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, I'm not going to be able to do this, I can't do this. The, the agency she was working with suggested, let's meet another couple. Let's, let's meet another couple. So they went to another place. We went to another office in, in Fort Wayne where we were living at the time. We met the couple, same story. Precious people, broken hearts, couldn't have kids, so hoping that she would pick them. Came home the same way. So upset, so distraught. I went into the director's office that next week and I said, I I can't take this. This is not going to work for me. Just let me adopt him, her, him, whatever. Just let me take him. And she said, I need you to sit back. I need you to watch what God's about to do. Because one, it will compromise the center if one of our employees does the adoption. And two, you have yet to see what God's going to do because she herself was an adoptive mother. So I Never had said that to the client, but I sat back and I prayed and I asked the Lord, God, do what you do. Do what only you can do. She meets the third couple. She goes into this room in the conference room of a hospital. She sits down and they begin to talk. And it's like she met her sister. I I can't even describe the connection that went on in that room. It was instant. It was amazing, it was tearful, it was laughing, it was crying. It was everything that you would think it would be. And they felt her heart and asked her to just give them her trust. Let them parent this child because everything they had, everything that they ever dreamed of having, everything they wanted to have was going to be poured in to this baby. And that is the couple. And to this day, I still get cards from this young lady. I saw a miracle that day. It was called the miracle of adoption. And yet, still, it doesn't even come close to what God thinks and dreams over you. He picked you, handpicked you, chose you, predestined you, from Romans 8, to be a son or a daughter of his. This is a big deal. That's why there's seven times mentioning we're his kids, his children. You need to know who you are. You need to know how unique you are and how God sees you differently than most of us would see ourselves. You and I are adopted. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, 19, I will be your father. You will be my sons and daughters, 
says the Lord Almighty. It's kind of case closed, don't you think? Kind of case closed. The people around you may not recognize who you are. They didn't recognize Christ either. They never could see that he was the son of God. They might think you're a fanatic. They might think you're a little too religious. You're definitely not as fun as they'd like you to be because you won't do the things that they want you to do. But you carry the family name. You're his son. You're his daughter. And this matters. This matters to us. We can know who we are. We can know that we're in the process of looking more and more like our father, even if we don't look like it much now. I've often been accused of none of my kids looking like me. But I was there. I know I'm their mother. They look more like their dad. They all look alike. I'm not sure what's going on there. But somewhere in that process, God said, you will resemble me because you will be like him. And it won't be complete until Jesus comes back. So be okay with the process. Be okay with the process, wherever you are in that. We're going to focus all of our hopes, all of our dreams, our entire identity on him by, as the verse says at the end of verse 3, keeping ourselves pure just as he is pure. I'm sure the first time you heard that, you sort of stepped back. I don't think there's anybody perfect here. If you are, why aren't you preaching? But somewhere in the process, keeping pure just looks like hope that comes through faith, that you believe God's word, that you are who he says you are, that he can do what he says he can do with you. That's keeping yourself pure. That's the purification process, and it is ongoing until Jesus comes home. There's a story that went around about a group of teenagers who were enjoying a party one night and just having fun, and then one of them suggested maybe they should go to another place for a good time. But this place was a little sketchy. So one of the young ladies said to her date, I, I can't go there. My parents don't approve of that place. And one of the other girls kind of sarcastically said, oh, you're afraid your father's going to hurt you if you go there? And she said, no, not at all. I'm afraid that I'll hurt my father if I go there. That's what it means to know who you are. I'm afraid I'll hurt my father. You and I don't want to hurt our father. Number two, in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 6, we're going to talk about what we won't do because of who we are. Sin is a big deal to God. It's a big deal. And the current culture today won't really tell you that. You're only going to hear that in church, and hopefully most of you will hear it at home but you're not going to hear it anywhere else because you're supposed to just be okay with it. Let everybody decide what's right and wrong for them. There's all this absolution going on. Sin is a big deal to God. It's why he sent his son to deal with it, to remove it from us. A definition of sin, an easy definition for me, is anything, anything, (laughs) anything that separates me from the love of God. Sometimes that can be good things, but just too much of them, like chocolate. It can be things that we don't necessarily think look bad, but for you, it kind of is. For maybe the kids sitting next to you, not so much, but for you, it doesn't put your mind in a good place. It doesn't help you look like the Father. Sin is what separates us from God. 
Those are the things that we're going to run from, things that we won't do. Last week, I heard a little bit of the message. Someone talked about procrastination, and I thought, oh, let's not talk about that this week. That hurt. Other obvious sins like lying, stealing, murder. But then there are those hidden sins, too. You know, the, no, the ones that no one sees because nobody's there. Impure thoughts, bad motives, sexual sins that just distort God's purpose for the gift that he's going to give you when you marry. All these things are sinned. So here's the fact. Sin's a big deal to God. It is a big deal, and Christians sin. I heard your pastor say that when I was here a couple weeks ago. Christians sin. We know that. We are those Christians. We struggle with some things from time to time. But the truth that needs to be added to the fact is sinners love their sin. We don't. There's a huge difference between a truth and a fact sometimes. Christians sin, and we're going to talk about what we do with that, but sinners love their sin. That's the foothold that often becomes the stronghold. The difference the Apostle John was trying to make here is not hard to see. If you decide to continue in sin and make it a lifestyle, you can't carry the family name. If this is a lifestyle, you can't carry his name. If you love, cherish, or treasure the sinful habit, that's going to take the name off. But if you're not sorry for the sin, if you're just sorry that you got caught, that's going to compromise the name. Different from the truth of a Christian who sins, I am one of those who occasionally sins, not a lifestyle, just messes up from time to time. The person that hates the sin because it separates them from the Father. And you feel it, boy. I mean, you're feeling it. You know there's distance between you and God. And you know you've got to do something about it, but you just haven't got there yet. That's the difference. It's coming because your heart is right, because you're leaning in the right direction. A Christian is sorry for their sins and quickly confesses it. Now, I heard a very good description of what it means to be a mature Christian once, and I'll probably botch it, but this is close. The time it takes for you to run home to the Father after making a sinful choice becomes shorter and shorter and shorter because you've become mature in God. The longer it takes us to get from the sin to the altar shows some immaturity as a Christian. And then I had to start working on it because sometimes I just kind of wanted to avoid the whole thing. Like, oh, I'm so sick of praying about this again. And then I would remember that definition again. The time it takes me to go from what I just did, thought, wanted to do, however I acted out on that, to get from there to run home to my father, that's where you get to carry the family name. Because that's exactly what he's saying to us when there's sin. Come home. Come, come home. Run home would be better. Run home. I love that. A Christian who struggles with a sin is a Christian who's in process. If that's you, own it. You're in process. 
I don't know about you, but in my denomination, sometimes I saw one too many altar calls filled with the same people every single week. What? You were just up there giving your heart to Christ last week. What's that about? It's because they were never taught correctly or could never grasp the idea that a Christian can sin, but a Christian's going to run to the Father to confess the sin and get to the next place, a greater maturity in God, a little bit quicker. You don't have to live, worry that you're going to go to hell because of what just happened on that test. He is cleansing us, does cleanse us, continues to cleanse us. The word says it's an ongoing process. Embrace the process. It'll save you a lot of heartache if you'll embrace the process. It's not that God takes a light view of sin. He just takes a very, very deep, loving view of the child of God who's working it out in process. He loves you. And there's nothing you could ever do that will stop that from happening. His love is unconditional. You're not going to find that anyplace else. There's a book I read once called Intimate Friendship with God. And she was a director of youth with a mission for a long time. And she described four distinct levels of sin. I found this very interesting and one of them kind of hurtful. Attitudes, she called them. These are attitudes towards sin. Number one. Number one, this person doesn't sin because they're holy. It's just that they're so afraid of the consequences. They're so afraid of the consequences, so they're good, right? They lust in their heart. They may truly hate somebody or wish that they were dead or even entertain just these horrible character assassination kind of thoughts all the time. They'd love to see that person just fail and fall flat on their face. But they won't say it because they're afraid of the consequences. They have no hatred for their sin. They're just afraid of getting caught. That is un confessed sin. Level two, this person lives by the golden rule because they want peace at any price, at any cost. We call that false peace. They certainly don't want to be seen as somebody that needs grace, so they put on a pretty good face most of the time, even if it means attending church regularly trying to look like they're on with the projects that we're doing now, always trying to keep up a good image. But you can kind of sniff them out when they are just trying so hard to be known for their goodness, and if you don't see that they did good things, they're kind of offended. The characteristic that defines them would probably be self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and I would add prayerlessness would define them. They don't acknowledge their sin. Attitude number three, and this one was the one that hurt a little. This person really does desire to please the Lord at all times. They're concerned about the sin in their life. They wonder why they constantly have to be confessing the same thing over and over again. It may be just a critical attitude, just a tendency to judge other people harshly. It may just be doubt because... Unbelief is a sin. Hard to manage that. But it always ends up in disobedience. And that's the sin that God can't leave alone. They continually struggle with the sin of pride and wanting to draw attention to themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a few moments of pride. What's wrong, as we learned in the beginning of this, is that when we live in a lifestyle of this, always wanting the attention, 
always wanting people to see where we are, what we're doing, making this think that we're better than we really are. Do you know what I often do before I ever teach? I did it tonight. I, I almost never don't. Well, now it's a little hard because of these crazy masks that we're all wearing. I will sit wherever I'm sitting, and it got a little hard when I was sitting on the front row, but I will just sit there right before I teach, and I will just do this to my face. Let's just get real. Let's never wear the mask in the presence of God. Let's be real. Let's tell the Lord where we're at, what's going on, what we're fighting, what we're not really willing to fight yet, but we know we're going to have to get there. Let's get the mask off. Let's get the mask off of our heart. And that will take about half those prayers that we keep saying the same time over and over and over again off of our prayer list. Because when you get real with God, he's going to say, I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you came. He never says, oh, it's you again. (laughs) That's not God's voice. We have this in common with those people. We want the right things, but the problem is we're continually struggling with this issue because of this. And then this author, now understand she did youth with a mission for a long time. She's a little twisted. This is how she described that person. She said, imagine if I was speaking, and I'll just put it in the first person here. Imagine if I was speaking, and before I came up tonight, there's just like a pile of cow manure on the floor here. We're going to have two choices if that happens. It's going to clear the room, and everybody's going to leave immediately until it's disinfected, sanitized, deodorized, washed, and cleaned up, which is what we should do with sin, right? Never leaving it in the room. Or, in this case, if I went to Pastor Jackson and said, I've got a little problem. I'm going to need a little help. I just really like the smell of cow manure. And it just, just, just one whiff of that. And it, it just really, it just really works for me. And, and, I, and I know it's not good for me. And I know people that have victory over this little problem, but this is just my little problem. So Pastor Jackson, if you could just, you know, throw a little prayer my way and then we'll get on with having church and, and, and it'll be fine. Do you know that's exactly how we approach God sometimes by those besetting sins? The ones we're kind of fond of? The ones we kind of enjoy? It's just cow manure on the floor. But the more that we get in that place of accepting it and not letting God deal with it, the more it starts to kind of smell okay, right? I mean, as compared to the kids you rub elbows with, we're doing pretty good, right? But the cow manure needs to be in the first group, the one that we run from until it's cleaned up, deodorized, sanitized, and washed away. That's what happens when we let things stay instead of just getting honest about it and dealing with it. We could quit praying over those things all the time if we would pray and ask God to give us a hatred for that sin, which is the fourth attitude. The person that's really going to be able to wear the family name is the person that's going to pray that prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. God, help me to hate my sin, not yours. I really don't have time to deal with yours. I got to hate mine. I got to go after me. And then God will help me see more clearly to see the little speck that's in your eye. I have to ask the Lord to give me a holy hatred for whatever is separating me from him. And I have to repeat that prayer 
often because we kind of let things sneak in and we just leave them there unattended for a while until one day we wake up and this is a battle now. Now it's a war. We read in Oswald Chambers, if you've ever done any of his devotionals, that these kinds of sins don't go out by petting them, stroking them, praying little cutesy prayers over them. We have to kick them out. We got to get on that defensive side of not letting anything penetrate this vertical relationship. James 1, 3, 13 through 15 says it this way. I think I'm in the New Living. I didn't write it down, but I think I am. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God's tempting me. God's never tempted anybody to do wrong. He never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. My own desires bring temptation in my life. That's where I have to go after it. The desires give birth to sinful actions, and when the sin is allowed to grow, it brings death. The person that carries the family name is the person that is often going to be seldom sinning. If you want to be a family man, if you want to be a a daughter of the king, you have to make that statement, this is where I'm going. I seldom sin. I sin, I'm never going to reach perfection, but this is not a lifestyle with me. This isn't a, okay, I did it again. I probably will do it again tomorrow and probably next Saturday too. This is not the attitude of one of the family kids. They seldom sin, but they do sin. And when they do, they run home. They run home. They run home. What is seldom? I don't know. That's between you and God. On some issues, it could be quite a victory to just once a day have that really mean thought on other issues, it should be less, less frequent. They will always carry the family name because they just refuse to let anything bring distance between them and their father. The third thing that we need to talk about just for a few minutes is what we always need to be on the lookout for. And we find that in verse 7, really 7 through 9 is where we're going to go. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it just shows they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. We read these verses when we started. But the next verse is the key to this, because it says, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Sin is a big deal, but Jesus came to destroy it we're going to win this. You're going to win that. Whatever it is that's on your mind that you're kind of struggling with, you're going to win that battle because Jesus came to destroy those works. He's really good at his job. We, as God's children, just need to be careful that we're never deceived, just kind of distracted to get away from God. Do you know how easy it is to quit going to church? I mean, my hat's off to you. In the middle of COVID with these crazy masks on and social distance that definitely does not define your age, here you are. Here you are. That's a good thing. That's a good thing because there are too many people that quickly lose those connections with God because they just find it so inconvenient to be here. This kind of war is going on in the church and even in my home church in Fort Wayne. I've had a few phone calls. Some people are completely upset because they are wearing masks, as if like that's an unholy thing to do. 
Other people are not going to go to church because not everybody had a mask on when they came to church. Since when did God say, well, I'm just going to make you have all the good touchy feels every time you want to go to church. It's all good. And if you're not feeling that, then you just stay home and stay in bed. Pastor Sheets doesn't preach good. You and I need to be where God gathers his people together to encourage one another. It encourages us to see it. Deception is what we're on the lookout for, and it's rampant today. You've been lied to, manipulated, like nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime. The way the false reporting has gone on, the trying to get your attention by sensationalism that is lacking facts, or just always throwing out to you what's wrong with this world, what's wrong would take away almost anybody's joy. Don't believe the deception. Keep your eyes on the word. God's for you. You sang it tonight. He's for you. He's for you. He's got this. He's got a future. He's got a plan. And you fit that plan. Don't be deceived. Don't let Satan speak to you about things that are not found in the word. Don't get distracted about bad news about your future. Forget that. He's already overcome that. He already knows what he's doing. Don't get drawn away from him, from believing that your father loves you. There was a quote by A.W. Tozer. He's just a really good author. And this is what he said. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you know and believe about God is the most important thing about you. It will determine your future. It will determine what you dream about, what you hope for, who you are, and how you walk that out, what you know about God, and you're not going to get that out there. It's going to happen in the Word, in your private time, and in here. No matter how nice a person seems to be, if they're practicing a sin of lifestyle, they don't belong to the family of God. The last one is easy because it talks about what we're all going to strive to do better because of who we are. Only two things. We are going to practice seeking God's will in thought, in action, and in purpose. You and I live righteously when we do that, but we have to practice. We have to practice. It doesn't come naturally. We have to ask him all the time, God, what do you think about this? What do you think about this date? What do you think about this place I'm going? What do you think about the college or work? What do you think about my response? We have to ask him. We have to ask him to come into those situations. It's called living righteously because it gives us purpose. And the last thing is we have to love each other, even the hard-to-love ones, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is the qualifier on this. Unselfish love for God's kids. That gives you the family name. Not so hard, right? Not so hard. Do you know what I wanted to happen with this message tonight? Who you are, what you won't do, what you will look out for, what you're going to strive to do better would free you from this whole sin cycle. God's for you. He wants you to understand it. He doesn't want you to take a light look at it, but he wants you to overcome it. We're not going to pick a lifestyle of sin. We're going to pick a lifestyle of getting off of that train and getting right in the presence of God. No distance. 
no distance between you and God. If you bow your heads, I'd just like to pray over you. Father, I thank you that you have them clearly in your hand, all of us. You know exactly what you want us to think about, how to react in certain situations, how to ask you for wisdom. You know these things, and you long to see us run home. Just run home. So God, I ask that this message tonight would help just kill that whole sin issue that keeps people feeling like God is angry at them, not for them, disappointed in them. Lord, we know from your word tonight that is not your voice. You are for us. You love us. We're your kids. You adopted us. You handpicked us. We are chosen. We did not choose you. You chose us to become the sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're so grateful that you did. Help us, God, to carry this out into our everyday world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to learn more about The Bridge, please follow us on Instagram at wearethebridge. Also, if you need prayer, send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.